Isn't it great to see all those children? Yeah? That's a blessing from God to all of us. Yeah. And thank you to the praise and worship team this morning. I, I don't know how many realize how the, the sacrifice that they make to offer what God has given to them. I mean, they, they practice all week long. They come here at 8 o'clock in the morning when most of you are probably just getting into your stage 4 REM sleep or coming out of it, something like that. And, and the, you know, they, they work hard. And then Analia is beautiful. Look at that painting this morning. Wow. Yeah. She's so gifted. So we are blessed to be ushered into the presence of God by so many wonderful people. I love the song this morning that, that there were lions in this house. Yeah? <clears throat> and that God had given us breath in our lungs, right? Are there some lions in this house? I think there are. C.S. Lewis in his stories, The Chronicles of Narnia, called the lion Aslan, right? And I love it when he said that Aslan was on the move. Mm. And, and that Aslan was a great lion, but he was not tame. Mm. Mm. You can hang out there for a little while. Well, that's not what I came to, to, to teach about today. Hey, listen, I want to uh, share, I know you saw the announcement up there, but we're doing something special on February the 22nd of this month, obviously, Wednesday night. <clears throat> Normally, we, we, we hold every night an open Bible study for anybody who wants to come. We call it Oasis, and we hope it is. Hope it's a place you can come in the middle of the week and get a good drink of water and, and rest, right? But prior to Oasis, at 5.30, we have a special time of prayer and worship every week, and it's just it's just a blessing. It's you know, Josh and Lydia and Corey and others and Emily, they come, they share, they pray, they sing and usher people in the presence of God. So for this month, on February the 22nd, we decided to combine both of them for one service on, on Wednesday night. It starts at 630. It's, it's, it's typically in the liturgical calendar called Ash Wednesday. But we, we're, go, we're not going to, you know, get hung up about that. The idea is to to begin a season where we prepare our hearts for Easter. Yeah. So I invite you to come and join us all on February the 22nd and see what God has for us. So let me ask you something. When you hear the word rest, what comes to mind? <laughs> Ice cream. Oh, my goodness. Recliner. Yeah. Amen for the recliner. Yeah. Hebrews 4. Okay. So lots of things come to mind. Some of them are, are, are about physical rest. Some of them are um, about maybe soul rest or peace of mind, right? Different things will come to mind. But for most of us, it's probably something like, whatever you call it, I want more of it. In fact, I'll take a double helping, yeah? I want some more rest in my life. You know, ironically, decades ago, futurists who are people that predict the future, talk about the future, they were predicting that with, with all of our technological advances, one of the greatest problems we would face in the 21st century is what to do with all of our spare time. Yeah. <laughs> and Bruce is laughing, yeah. I mean, when I think about that, I just laugh. What to do with all of our spare time? I guess, I guess in theory, that would, that would have been great, but, you know, 
what we did was we we crammed it. We crammed it full of uh, of, of more work, more productivity, more obligations, more responsibilities, more emails, more texts, more events, more activity, more, more, and more to the point that instead of finding ourselves with all of this spare time in which to relax, we find ourselves frazzled and worn out and tired. We find ourselves overstimulated, unable to focus for more than five minutes. We, we find ourselves at times anxious and guilty and depressed. The bottom line is when, when you put all of that into the blender of our mind and you turn it on, what comes out is a long way from what we would call rest. You know, according to the CDC, if you can believe any of their statistics these days, but, but according to the CDC, about one in every seven people in the United States is taking an antidepressant. Between 40 to 50 million people are taking an antidepressant every day just to function in life. And I'm not saying that, that that's, it's horrible, that you shouldn't take prescribed medicines. Don't get me wrong. But, but that many people taking antidepressants is a sign to us that this nation and probably this world is not at rest. It's not at rest. That is not what God intended for us. It's not what God intends for us now, and it's not what God intends for us in the future. In fact, from the very beginning of God's word, the Lord talks about the importance of rest. It's commonly called the word Sabbath, or the Sabbath. Now, Pastor Aaron and the leaders of Upper Room have decided that for the next several weeks, we're going to dive into this concept of Sabbath rest, to understand it, to explore it, and hopefully to live it out and implement it. I'm going to tell you right now that the goal of this series is going to be to invite you, not, not command you, but invite you to implement and to experience Sabbath rest in your life and in the life of your family. Now today, I've been given the opportunity to, to lay a biblical foundation for Sabbath rest. And we're going to survey from Genesis to Revelation. And now your mind is thinking, oh my goodness, we're going to be here all day long. We're, we're going we're to survey quickly from Genesis to Revelation, the biblical foundation for the concept of the Sabbath. And in subsequent weeks, Pastor Aaron and other leaders are going to talk about the, the practical implications of Sabbath, the dynamics of that. Uh, sort of the how-to. How do we practice Sabbath in our lives? You ready? Okay, so let's buckle up. Here we go. The first stop for today is in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis. In Genesis, the very first chapter, chapter 1, we're all probably familiar with that. And it's a story of creation, where God literally creates the heavens and the earth. We have this dynamic picture where where the, there's the, 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 the earth is, 
is without form and void. It's called wild and waste. And darkness is over the face of this deep abyss. It's a word for deep waters, okay? And then suddenly the Holy Spirit appears over, hovering over the waters. And out of that is created order in six days. Each of those days ends with this saying, and there was evening and there was morning, day one, or day two, or day three, etc. In the Jewish calendar, their day began in the evening. In fact, at sundown. And it went until sundown of the next day. And we typically think of day and evening. But for them, it was evening and morning. Day one, day two, day three. All the way until day seven. Now, something amazing happens on day seven. Let's take a look at it. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And there, the scriptures say, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested. You see that word rested? He rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Here we see the first building block for the concept of Sabbath rest. You see, the word rest that we translate rest in this verse is the Hebrew word Shabbat. Say that with me. Shabbat. Love that word. And from that word Shabbat, we get the English word Sabbath. Okay? See the connection? So this, this word Shabbat literally means to stop. To cease. To rest. It literally, it's like, you know, I know some of you drive like me and you come to a stop sign and you kind of think, well, they don't really mean that, right? And you kind of, oh, you throw that thing of it. I've done that a few times, right? But this is really like, stop. Just stop. Rest. God stopped. He ceased. He rested from something. In this case, this, this, this passage tells us he rested from his work, from the work of creation on the seventh day. God's work was complete or finished. Keep that in your mind. His work was complete or finished, and he rests or he stops on the seventh day, being the last day of the week. The, the, the last day of the week from the Jewish calendar was Saturday. It essentially went from sundown on Friday night until sundown on Saturday. And that day came to be known as the Sabbath, the day of rest, the day we stop. The next thing to note about this is that God blessed the seventh day. Now that means that God gives something special of himself to that seventh day. And this concept of Sabbath blessing on the seventh day grows into many other blessings in the scripture. It eventually grows into the seven annual festivals that the Jewish people celebrate, each of which, which culminates in the Sabbath. It grew into the concept of a blessing that would happen every seven years when debts were forgiven. I like that. Or slaves were set free. Or the land was allowed to rest, to lie fallow from planting or harvest. But there was more. 
It grew into an even greater blessing every seven times 70, or seven times seven years, which would be 49 years, into the 50th year that came to be known as the year of Jubilee. On that year, debts were also forgiven. Slaves were set free. And land that you might have owned 50 years ago was turned back over to you. Can you imagine what it was like at the recorder's office on that day? I mean, just, just craziness, right? The local Jewish recorder's office, you know, line up, please, long lines, you know. Yeah, so, but the land even got restored to its original owners. Amazing. Sevens throughout the scripture. If you pick up the Hebrew Bible and you look at Genesis 1-1, the very first word, it has, or very first verse, it has seven Hebrew words. You look at Genesis 1-2, it has 14 Hebrew words. Sevens, completeness, finished, blessing. And let me say this about blessing. This is relationship with God 101. You want to be where God is blessing, okay? You really want to be where God is blessing. In fact, it's where you were made to be. You were made to be in the place of God's blessing. The other thing he did was he, he made it holy. You see that reference to holy? And, and the word holy means to be set apart. In other words, God says this day is supposed to be unlike the other six days of the week. And of course, that's tied into your work. You, you're going to work the other six days, but on the seventh day, you're not going to work. You're not going to do the work you normally do the other six days. You're going to stop because I've set this day apart as being a holy day. Now, the last thing I would say is this. What's amazing about the seventh day in Genesis is that it doesn't end. There is no evening and morning, day seven. God declares a Sabbath rest after his creation that in some senses was never intended to end. Okay, before we leave Genesis, we've got to pick up another concept that feeds into to Sabbath rest. And to do that, we're going to go to Genesis 2.15. And Genesis 2.15 says... The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Notice that the, the highlighting of the word, or it's not highlighted there, but the word put and the words to work it and keep it. We're going to talk about that. So on day six, when we were just talking about day, the, the days of creation, on day six, God makes man. He creates man from the dust of the earth. He breathes breath, the breath of life into his lungs and creates him. And, and he takes man and he says something special that separates man from all of his other creation. He, he basically says that man is going to be his image bearer. He made man in his image. That means we become like God's representative, if you will. His, his manager, his steward, his, his regent over all of creation. In fact, he tells man to do that. I want you to exercise dominion over what I have made. And I want you to be fruitful and to multiply. Now, he's, he does something else that's very special with the man, and it comes out in this verse. He, he plants this garden in the east of a region called Eden. We commonly call it the Garden of Eden. And he takes the man, and he puts him in that garden. Now, it's a special garden. God's planted everything. 
I mean, for those of you who are not gardeners, you probably like coming into a garden that's already been planted, right? That's a pretty cool thing. <laughs> Jay's a gardener. I know others of you are. It takes a lot of work to plant a garden. But God planted this garden. I mean, we're talking Scott's grow and miracle grow on steroids, right? I mean, this baby is producing trees and plants that can be eaten by man and the other animals. That's what the scriptures tell us. He puts man, he puts man in this garden. But it's not, the word for put is, is a very special word. It's, it's called nuach. Say that with me. Nuach. Don't you love Hebrew words? You can kind of spit every other word. It's just an amazing thing, right? So he, he puts he puts he nuaks this man into the garden it's not just like i took something and i set it down or placed it somewhere that that's not that, it's not just like i put something but but the concept here is that he he settled man into the garden he he i don't know if you could do make this a verb or not but he he dwelled man in the garden he he there's there's a there's a there's a definite meaning of relationship here he took man after he created this sanctuary a very special place and he settled him he rested him in that garden to have relationship with man in, in some senses we have to shabbat stop in order to nuach right that's how these two fit together i gotta stop the madness at least one day a week, please, okay? I got to stop it so that I can dwell, rest in relationship with God. So it's not surprising that the story that's described in Genesis is that God walked with man in this garden. It's an intimate relationship that exists. What is man to do in the garden? It says he's to, to work, right, and to keep it. He's put there to work and to keep it. That's a literal translation. But, but it's, I would tell you this, that in the context and the Hebrew words that are used here, many scholars have said a better translation of that is that man was put in the garden to worship and obey. To worship and obey. That he's... He's going to work and keep, work and guard. But primarily, the meaning in this context is that man was put in the garden to worship him and to obey. All right, that's a great picture. We've got this amazing sanctuary, this great garden. Man's walking with God. I mean, they're in tight relationship, right? Everything's cool. And then we, don't, we just turn the page with chapter 3, and man blows it. I mean, how do you blow that? Everybody raise your hand and say, I've blown it too. Yeah, well, yeah, well, so, so Adam did. He blew it. God gave him one command. He's like, dude, listen, I got this tree in the middle of the garden. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that tree. I'm telling you now, don't eat that tree. And what does he do? He goes and eats from the tree right and and when he does so he changes the course of all of our lives we call that the fall of man he chose his way his will over god's will we call that sin we disobeyed what god said 
He was put there to worship and to obey, and he does not. And so there are consequences for that. God puts him out of the garden. He takes him out of this holy sanctuary, puts him outside of it, puts these Urim and, and, and Thummim, you know, at, at the seraphs at the, at, the, at the gate with these flaming swords. And, you know, I mean, like, this is like better than the Star Wars. I mean, you know, just the flaming, the whole thing. You're not getting back in. Puts him out of the garden, right? And man is no longer in the same relationship with God that he was in the garden. But God had a plan. He had a plan to redeem man. He had a plan to save man for the sake of man. To bring man back into a garden relationship with him again. To bring man back to the garden where he could walk with God again. And what I want to submit to you is part of that salvation plan was the Shabbat and the new ark. Let's look and see how this unfolds. We're going to move next to Exodus. <clears throat> the Israelites, as you know, end up getting enslaved in Egypt. And as part of God's ultimate plan to save both the Jews and the non-Jews, he redeems or saves the Israelites from their Egyptian slavery through a man named Moses. I like that name, don't you? Moses. I think that's the way Charlton Hesed said in the movie, Moses. So I walk around and say, Moses. Oh, well, I'm moving on. Okay. So Moses leads the people through the water, right? Through the, through, through the sea. And he takes them to Mount Sinai. Because at Mount Sinai, he's told them he, he's going to disclose some things about himself on the path to bringing them back into relationship with him. He's going to enter into a covenant, almost like a marriage with them again and tell them some things about himself. So, to do that, he gives the people what we commonly call the Ten Commandments. And, and the Ten Commandments, the first four of them, you know, I, I use this acrostic in my brain, in my brain called Oivsh Maswick, you know, O-I-V-S-H-M-A-S-W-C. Thou shalt have no other, O, gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven I, Images, right? Idols. Don't bow down to those things. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord that got in the vain. Okay? Remember the Sabbath. There we go. There's the S, right? O I V S, right? Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy, right? H, honor your father and your mama. Okay? Just saying. O I V S H. Now we get into the additional moral commands. Don't murder. M. Don't commit adultery. A. Don't steal, S. Don't bear false witness, false witness. That means don't be lying, okay, right? W and C, don't covet your neighbor's anything. Fill in the blank. Their house, their wife, their car, their cow, their dog, nada. Don't covet your neighbor's anything. The Ten Commandments, right? The first four of those are about our relationship with God. And they, they, in detail, describe what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The last six are about our relationship to one another because we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, the greatest commandment. So the Ten Commandments fit into the greatest commandment. Today, we want to focus on the fourth one because by the time they get to Mount Sinai 
after God has redeemed them from, from slavery, he takes the concept of Shabbat and he makes it a commandment for them, the fourth one. So we go to Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. He says, this is God speaking. Remember the Sabbath day, the Shabbat day, okay, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath, a Shabbat to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, if you remember the verses we just read in Genesis, in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, you will see that this, this, that has become the basis now for this command. Many years later, when they're standing at Mount Sinai, it becomes the fourth commandment. Here, God commands the Jewish people to observe Shabbat just like God did on the seventh day of creation. And on Shabbat, they are supposed to focus on God and recognize God's blessings and keep the seventh day holy, separate from any other day of the week, which means to set it apart from their weekly schedule, just like God did on the seventh day in Genesis 2. This, this also means that they were not permitted to work, say work, work on the seventh day, which lasted from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And this restriction applied to everyone in the family, as you can see from this list. Mom and dad, the daughters and sons, visitors, your slaves, your servants, and even your animals. They got to take a day of rest too. It applied to everyone. That said, the work that was actually prohibited on the Sabbath was the usual labor that people performed on the other six days of the week. There were exceptions for work that could not be stopped without causing harm to people or, to, or even to animals. People and animals would still need to be fed. Any farmer can tell you that. Livestock that produced milk would still have to be milked. And the priests would still be working in the temple on the Sabbath. So the bottom line is, to the extent possible, all workers were supposed to stop their normal work unless the stoppage would cause some harm. So the Shabbat that is embodied in this fourth commandment became a very important sign of the Israelites' relationship with God. A sign of the covenant. Not, not, not unlike the circumcision had become a sign of the covenant earlier between Abraham and God. It became a ritual and important ceremonial practice for the Jewish community. community. It, in other words, it, it was like a boundary marker for them. It set them apart from the other nations around them. It said not only to themselves as a matter of identity, but to others that we are the people of Yahweh. And for that reason, we set aside one day a week to worship him, to obey him, to be different than the others that were around them. So now I want to turn to several years later. We've left the time of Mount Sinai. They've wandered in the wilderness. And now, as was referenced earlier today, they're about to go into the promised land. And just about the time that they're going to go into promised land, Moses reminds them again of the Ten Commandments. 
Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. And you're going to see that this is almost identical, except in a couple of important instances, to what we just read from Exodus. Let's begin at verse 12. Here Moses says to them on the precipice of the promised land, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest. Look at that word. May rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now Moses, Moses' restatement of the fourth commandment in, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 5, as you can see, is almost identical to what God had said in Exodus chapter 20. He emphasizes that the male and the female servants in the Jewish household were supposed to be able to, however, rest. You see that different word there? And this is one of the significant differences. The word that he uses for rest here is the word nuach. Go back to Genesis chapter 2 for a second. Remember when God placed Adam in the sanctuary of the garden and he settled him there. He, he rested him there so that they could have relationship. Here is where this gets picked up and put into the actual practice of Shabbat. That, that, that your servants, as well as you, are supposed to nuach on the Sabbath. It's not about just stopping from work. It's not about just taking a day off. It's not about just ceasing from my labor for the six days. There's something that, that you're supposed to do on that seventh day, and that involves nuach, to rest, to further your intimate relationship or develop an intimate relationship with God and to engage in practices that would support that. So there's one more thing he says here that's unique about the Sabbath. And he tells them that the Sabbath time, the Sabbath day, was to be a time for the Israelites to remember that they were once slaves and that God had redeemed them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm to save them from bondage. In other words, there's a looking back, not only at what God did on the seventh day, but on how God had actually redeemed them or saved them from bondage. Hmm. Maybe the practice of Shabbat today should involve us remembering, remembering how God has redeemed or saved us. Hold on to that. Now, we have Shabbat in place. It's an identity marker for the Israelite people. It's a commandment. In fact, in Exodus 31, they're told that if they don't follow the Sabbath, if they don't observe Shabbat, they can be put out of the community. In fact, it says they could even be subject to death. Very serious. So this is in place for hundreds of years. And then we come to the time of Jesus. The question is, what has happened to the Sabbath in the intervening years? Well, here's what we know. We know that during the time between when the Sabbath was implemented and the time when Jesus comes, the Sabbath had become very structured. 
In fact, the Jewish rabbis, not unlike lawyers, were very good at making things quite plain. And they had developed actually 39 separate categories of work. Can you believe that? 39 separate categories to define work so that you know what you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to work. So let's make this clear. We're going to create 39 categories that have all kinds of sub... I'm not even going to get into sub points. I mean, there were, they gave them the Ten Commandments. There were 613 laws by the time Jesus came. I mean, I mean, listen, folks, I'm just saying, big picture, they couldn't obey the original 10. I don't know why they created war. I'm just saying. But now we have this very rigid structure. We have a code, if you will, by which we will judge your behavior to determine whether you are doing what you are allowed to do on the Sabbath or not. The focus becomes on what they're not supposed to do instead of what they are. That's kind of a life principle, friends, I got to tell you. We can whack people all day long, right, for not doing something or for, for doing the wrong thing. And we can lay out what's wrong and we can whack them for what's wrong. But maybe a life principle is to draw people to do what's right. So that they choose right instead of focusing on the law. We, we don't focus on the law because the law leads to death. We focus on life. So Jesus comes, and man, we've got one rigid Sabbath system going on, right? So let's see what he has to say. Turn with me. Because he has a lot to say about the Sabbath. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. And, and I'm going to quote a familiar verse. And, and you know what? You may not have ever thought that this applied to the Sabbath, but it absolutely does. So let's look at this. Here's Jesus speaking to his followers, and he says this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Ooh, there's that word. When you see that word rest, you should have little, little lights going off. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because that's like a hyperlink right back to Shabbat, right back to Genesis. Here's Jesus saying, you want rest? You want Shabbat? You want Nuach? Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wow, man, that must have been shocking news for most people because when they would have heard the word rest, they would have thought about Shabbat, right? And he's saying, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. They're probably thinking, Jesus, have you read the 39 categories? I mean, you know, <laughs> ain't nothing light or easy about that action. I'm just telling you. I, you know, that's, that had to be going through their minds. So what Jesus is saying is certainly something different than the rigid structure of the, of the, the outer house, if you will, that was built around the Sabbath. And, and the point is, they built this rigid house around the Sabbath and what, what work was was and, and what you were not to do, but they had lost what was inside of it. It had become a, a classic example of form over substance. 
And Jesus is now issuing a correction about what the Sabbath rest was supposed to be. He invites us to come to him. And he says the way to rest is essentially through intimate relationship with him. The way to rest, the way to genuine Shabbat, Nuach, rest, is through intimate relationship with him. And he does this through de describing something all of them would have recognized. He talks about a yoke. Now, I'm not a farmer. I try to grow a garden. I try. A small one. And I tell everybody about it, just like I am right now. <laughs> kind of a garden pretender, you know what I mean? <laughs> you ever done that before? You just got to, uh, yeah, I grow, I grow a garden. Yeah, me. You know. Yeah. I'm sort of a garden pretender. But but, but, but in, those, in those days, like, you know, that everybody, it was an agrarian culture. I mean, everybody growing their stuff, right? And they got these animals called ox that are like pulling the plows, right? Well, you know, how do you train a young ox? This is not a riddle. How do you, change, how do you train a young ox to do what the old ox does? Well, you put them in a yoke. It's something that went over the back of, of each animal. So you take the old ox, you put him in a yoke, and you take the young ox and you put them right next to the old ox. And, and then they tie them both to the plow. And then the old ox essentially teaches the young ox in the process how to pull the plow. So Jesus is giving them a very beautiful picture because you see people think in pictures. They don't think in words. Did you know that? They think in pictures. He gives them a picture. And he says, let me tell you what this coming to me and, and gaining rest is all about. Let me, let me tell you what intimate relationship is all about. It, it's kind of like when you take an ox and you put them in a yoke and, and you put the young ox next to them and they train them how to live life. I'm, I'm going to show you, if you will get into the yoke with me, if you will get into the yoke with me, I will give you rest. You'll find that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wow. Intimate relationship with God. Nuach. Now, lest you think this is not really talking about the Sabbath, all you got to do is turn the page because in chapter 12, the next two verses are two stories about the Sabbath. And they're fantastic stories, which we're going to look at quickly. Okay, so Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8. Let's look at the first story. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and he began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? <clears throat> How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence? which was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read the law and the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's some heavy lead right there. 
Here's, here's Jesus walking through the green fields. And his, his disciples are plucking some of the heads of green. Now, af after all I've said, if, if, if the Garden of Eden doesn't pop into your brain, I've just done a pretty lousy job, right? I mean, here's, here's God walking through the fields with his disciples, picking food. If that ain't Nuwak and Shabbat, I don't know what it is. But the Pharisees, they've got these 39 categories. And, oh, no, no. No, no, no. You should not be picking the, you know, no, no. That's work. It really wasn't. I mean, it really wasn't. If you look at the law, they weren't violating the law. You know, I, I'm a lawyer, so I hear a lot of stories that get ruined by the facts, right? I mean, that, that <laughs> well, just saying <laughs> Everyone that represents innocent, right? I'm just telling you. <laughs> this was a story that got ruined by the facts. I mean, it really wasn't, wasn't work for them to, you see, because they, they normally would leave the edges of the fields. They wouldn't pick them so that the poor and the hungry and the widows and the orphans could come and could get food to eat. And here's his disciples who are, are doing it. They're hungry. They're doing the same thing. It wasn't a violation of law. And I could just see Jesus standing there thinking, Oh, oh Lord. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And, 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 and he, instead of like trying to correct the facts, he just says, listen, you guys are so way off. I'm just going to talk about two things that really are unlawful. Okay, let's just go there, all right? He says, you remember David? Yeah, that guy who became your king, right? Well, he, was, he was running from King Saul, and he and his people were hungry, and they went into the sanctuary, and they took the 12 sacred loaves that were baked and placed on the table of the bread of presence every Sabbath. They just take them, and they eat them. And, and those were supposed to only be eaten by the priests. How dare them? And guess what? The Bible doesn't say they did anything wrong. Wow. And oh, by the way, last time you were at the temple on the Sabbath, guess who was working? The priests. Pastor Aaron's going, yeah. And they were guiltless. And Pastor Aaron says, amen. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 so Jesus says, listen, the, 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 these guys, the, the, there clearly are some exceptions to these rules. And you're missing the point. Here's the point. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He quotes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. The word for mercy there is, is, is a direct related to the word in Hebrew, hesed, which means steadfast love. He's saying, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. What is sacrifice? Sacrifice is a general term that referred to the category of ritual and ceremonial practices of which circumcision was one and the Sabbath was one. And he's saying, listen, I want steadfast love. I want to be in relationship with my people. These are my disciples. They're walking through the grain fields with me. It's a beautiful thing based in a loving, intimate relationship, and you want to declare them guilty because they're violating some ritual? You've lost the meaning of the Sabbath. You've lost the meaning. And then he drops the bomb on them. Oh, by the way, 
something greater than your temple is here. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, do you hear what he's saying? I am the God who back in Genesis chapter 2 said that this day will be Shabbat, who told people to rest, who blessed it and made it holy. I am the God who stood before Moses and pronounced the fourth commandment and said, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. In other words, I wrote the thing. I know what it means. Wow. The Lord of the Sabbath is walking in the garden with his disciples. That's what was happening. So he leaves from there. And the next story, in Matthew 12, verses 9 through 14, he says, he went on from there and he entered the synagogue. And there was a man there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. And he said to them, which one of you has a sheep? And if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Oh, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy, like the other. And the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Wow. Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there's a man with a hand like this. And they're, and they're watching to see if he would help the man on the Sabbath. Again, earlier I said form over substance. This is another form over substance, right? They're, they're, they're thinking that if, you, if, if there's truly an emergency and his life is in danger, he's about to die, that you can do something on the Sabbath to help him. But otherwise, you can heal him on another day, right? Heal him on another day. Jesus is like, listen, if you had one of your animals that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, you're going to let the animal stay there all day long? No, you're going to go get that animal out of the hole. And if you would do that for an animal, he wouldn't do that for a man. For someone made in my image, the image bearer of God, he tells the man to stretch out his hand, and he heals his hand. And his hand opens. Wow. On the Sabbath. And still they don't get it. They don't get it. And they want to go out and they kill him. Earlier I told you that when man sinned in the garden, God had a plan to bring man back. And that plan was ushered into this world through Jesus, his son. And when they go out to plan to destroy him, ultimately they do. They put him on a cross and they crucify him which was part of God's plan. And on that cross, Jesus says these words in John 19, 30. It is finished. It is finished. The same words that God pronounced when he finished creation on the seventh day it's finished 
with Jesus' death on the cross, he provided the means for man to come back into a garden relationship with God once again. He was the ultimate sacrifice. He was the ultimate plan. He was the way for man to enter into Shabbat, Nuach, rest with God again. What he did on the cross finished that work. But when we as Christians practice Shabbat, we not only look to the past and what God did, and we not only look to what God is doing in our lives now, but it's a proclamation of what is yet to come. You see, God intends to take us literally back to that garden. And we find this in Revelation 21, and I want to close with this passage. It says, Then I saw a new heaven, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Do you hear that? The dwelling place of God is with man. We, we, we are back together. Heaven has touched earth again in a holy sanctuary. The garden is back, and the dwelling place of God is with man again. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you hear the echoes of walking in the garden? Do you hear that? And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. A new creation. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Free water, free. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Chapter 22 goes on to describe this city, that there's a, a river of life flowing out from the throne. And along the bank are, guess what? The tree of life. It literally, it says that the tree of life, just like in the garden, that will yield fruit that brings healing to those and the leaves of those who, who touch and who take from them. God's plan is to take us back to the garden, to restore us to Nuach. And when we practice Shabbat and Nuach, we proclaim not just what he did in the past and what he's doing now, but what he is going to do in the future. All right, so now you're probably thinking, Steve, I get all that. I get that. But here's the real question. For those of you lawyers in the crowd, say amen. Yes. Here, here's the real question. Are Christians commanded to observe the Sabbath? Do we have to observe Shabbat? 
Now, this question came up in the early church in Acts chapter 15. And I'm just going to quickly describe this. But the question was this. Do Gentiles, which is most of us, right? Are there any Jews here? Yeah? Amen, brother. Okay. But for most of us Gentiles, the question was, we have seen God come upon Jesus, come into the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit to fill them, just like the Jews. So for them to be Christians, do they have to first become Jews? In other words, do they have to adopt our ceremonial practices? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to observe Shabbat? Do they have to observe all the dietary laws? Do they have to observe our ritual and ceremonial practices to be a Christian? They have a big council in Jerusalem about this. And ultimately, this is what they decide in chapter 15 of Acts, verses 19 through 21. This is James, the leader of the, of the church. He says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things that are polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So what's James saying? James is saying there are Jews located all across the Roman Empire. And every Sabbath, they're getting in the synagogue and they're reading from the law of Moses. And, and, and part of their understanding is that in order to worship him, they have to follow certain dietary laws. But we don't think you need to follow the ceremonial practices, the ritual practices of the Jews. He's telling us to the Gentiles. We don't believe you have to do that in order to be a follower of Christ. But what we want you to do is we want you to, to observe three things. We don't want you eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And, and we don't want you to eat animals that have been strangled or that have blood in them, right? And we want you to abstain from sexual immorality. So why those, why those three things? Well, two of them involve ritual practices. The point is he doesn't want the Gentiles to do something that will offend the Jewish Christian brothers or that will keep other Jews from coming to know Christ, so those two limited things, don't eat food sacrificed to idols, don't eat food that's been strangled or that has blood in it, and also, he says, avoid sexual immorality. Now, that was, that was a moral issue, a moral issue. So what James is essentially saying is that the moral laws of the Old Testament, no murder, no, no adultery, no stealing, all those types of things, the moral laws still apply, and they apply to Gentiles. But the ceremony or the ritual practices are not commandments except for these two, these two things about food to idols and, and blood in them. So the answer to the question, for all of you lawyers out there, at least in this lawyer's mind, is that Shabbat is not a commandment for Christians. But I would say this to you. That is not the question we should be asking. If anything, we see from what Jesus has been doing with his disciples, that's not the question to be asking. The question is, why wouldn't we run to Shabbat? It's an invitation we cannot afford to deny. God wants to be in intimate relationship with us. Jesus wants us to get into the yoke with him. And when we practice Shabbat, when we take one day out of the week and we say, we're not going to do the work we do in the other days. On this day, we're going to devote it to the Lord. We're going to devote it to deepening our relationship with God. And we're going to do the things that symbolize that. We're going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to, to sing. We're going to care for other people. We're going to engage in activities. Study, reading of Scripture. We're going to engage in activities that are going to increase our relationship. When we do that, 
we then receive the rest of God. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So, is it a law? No. And if it was, you probably wouldn't do it. It's not a law. It's an amazing, amazing opportunity for you to walk in relationship with God, to remember what he's done for you in the past, to see what he will do for you now, and to keep a vision into the future of the day when we will walk with him again in the garden. Why don't you stand with me? I talked a long time. You guys are patient. But this week, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about your week. And I want you to ask yourself, is God the Lord of your time? Do you want real rest with God? I want you to begin to think about what would it look like in your life or in the life of your family if you were to set aside one day a week to Shabbat and to Nuach with the Lord, devoted to building your relationship with Him on that one day, what would it look like? What would you have to change in your life? How would you have to change your schedule? What would it be? I'm not telling you everything to do on that day, but I want you to, I want you to pray about it. I want you to think about it because God will be in your thoughts. He will be in your dreams about this. And in the coming weeks, as Pastor Aaron and the other leaders begin to add some flesh to these bones that I've laid out today, you will begin to see how God invites you to this amazing opportunity to receive his blessing on the Sabbath day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you invite us to come to your Sabbath rest. You invite us to take your yoke upon us, to walk with you in intimate relationship so that we can find a life that is light and easy. Not because we won't come across difficult circumstances, because life happens, but because you will give us a way to approach even those things in an attitude of rest. For it's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go in peace, my friends.